Frustrating, isn't it? My name is Thompson. Whatever happened to free will? We actually tried free will before. After taking you from hunting and gathering to the height of the Roman Empire, we stepped back to see how you'd do on your own. You gave us the Dark Ages for five centuries, until finally we decided we should come back in. The chairman thought that maybe we just needed to do a better job with teaching you how to ride a bike before taking the training wheels off again. So we gave you the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, scientific revolution. For 600 years, we taught you to control your impulses with reason. Then in 1910, we stepped back again. Within 50 years, you'd brought us World War I, the Depression, fascism, the Holocaust, and capped it off by bringing the entire planet to the brink of destruction in the Cuban Missile Crisis. At that point, a decision was taken to step back in again before you did something that even we couldn't fix. You don't have free will, David. You have the appearance of free will. You expect me to believe that? I make decisions every day. You have free will over which toothpaste you use or which beverage to order at lunch, but humanity just isn't mature enough to control the important things. So you handle the important things. Well, the last time I checked, the world's a pretty screwed up place. It's still here. If we'd left things in your hands, it wouldn't be. If you believe in God, then somewhere in your thinking about God, you have a, a theory, a theology, about what is the relationship between any human authority and God's authority. If you don't believe in God, and there's no presumption on my part that anybody that's watching this day believes in God, even if you don't, you still have somewhere in your thinking a theory as to what is the relationship between any human authority and the nature of reality as they see it, as you see it, as we have a consensus on that nature. You can't escape it. There's no way of avoiding the question of what is the relationship of every human authority and something that's greater than it. It just so happens if you weren't sure that all eyes right now are on this question, who has a right to lead? Who should be in leadership? And if you're familiar with our neck of the woods and our family of Grace Mills River, then you also know that on this day, we're asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to entrust authority to somebody like Andrew Kerhulis, who's becoming our formalized assistant pastor this day. He's not even old enough to be written in on the ballot on the name for the presidency. Regardless of those two questions, as much as they are related and yet distinct, it just so happens there is a convergence with those questions. We're in listening to the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel already, we've, we've heard him discuss the idea of divine sovereignty and what is a picture of human integrity and what is the nature of divine prophecy? And it just so happens that in the passage we're gonna look at today, it's gonna to talk about authority. And it really is going to flesh out for us the relationship between the nature of human authority and divine authority. And we need clarity and wisdom on that question in our thinking. And so we're gonna to listen to a passage about another disturbing dream that's held by one in authority to flesh out for us what is that relationship between a human 
and a divine authority. And we're going to find out three things about that relationship. We're in Daniel 4. It's a long passage. Most good stories that need to be told take a little time to tell, especially if they have something to teach. So we'll let you remain seated if you wish, or if you want to stand, you can. But listen again to Daniel 4 to hear what is the relationship between authorities, both human and that which is not human. Central text, Daniel 4, 4 through 37. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lie in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarm me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, who he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw, and their interpretation. The visions in my head as I lie in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the loveliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, and under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump 
of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time that you know that, that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let me let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Oh, be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers and his nails were like bird claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. So you're probably starting to notice patterns if you've been reading along with us in the book of Daniel. As it was in chapter 2, so we hear in chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar of what was then the Babylonian Empire, he can't sleep. He is the one who, with his Babylonian contingent, has swallowed up every other, uh, annexed every other people into its midst by force. He has carted off the brain trust of every nation that is now under his power. And so by all measures, he is a force to be reckoned with. He is, as we've said before, a formidable power. And yet the irony of it is he can't sleep. And in his sleeplessness, he's having a dream. And as we come to learn, this dream is more than just a dream. It's more than just about 
odd thoughts about his mother. This is a dream, with a, which is a vision, a vision of a future. And that vision has everything to do with a tree, a tall, stately tree, a majestic tree. It is tall in its stature. It casts a wide shadow wherever it stands. And it is yet come under the submission of something it did not expect. A presence from heaven itself has swooped in, has brought it low, has stripped of it of all of its glory. It has laid it bare, and yet it has still left it alive. You can't see it in this frame, but there's a stump just off to my left, and that stump remains. And in this story, in this vision, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar is having, it is a stump that is still left alive with still the possibility of having new life in it. And if the dream isn't already bizarre enough, the vision is one of a, mind, of a tree that has a mind, a mind like a man's, and yet a mind that is suddenly transformed into that like an animal's. It is wild as it finds itself in a wilderness, and there it wonders, what am I to be? And it is only after a certain amount of time that that tree, which has the mind like an animal, starts to understand itself. Something begins to click, and something there changes in this once stately and glorious tree. That's the vision. That's the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar cannot make heads or tails of it. And as it's, you've seen in previous moments in the book of Daniel, he appeals to his royal court of native-born Babylonians, and none of them can make any sense of it, except one, one whose name is Daniel, who's been given another name, a Babylonian name by the name of Belteshazzar, one who is in exile from the nation of Judah, he is able to make sense of it. And when he reckons with the dream that he hears from his king, his king who is also his captor, he is alarmed. He is dismayed by what it means. Because when he considers its truth, he realizes that what Nebuchadnezzar is speaking of is his own self. And in that moment, Daniel has to explain to his king how he's going to understand himself. He is there to tell his king that that tree is Nebuchadnezzar himself, stately, glorious, grown to full measure, casting a long shadow. And in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar has forgotten something fundamental about himself. He's forgotten something fundamental about the nature of his authority, the nature of his rule. And the most prominent thing that this text is teaching us, three times it says as much as what you find there in verse 17. It says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Daniel is a man exiled, and yet Daniel is a man who has been entrusted with authority by the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar, and in that moment, Daniel is there to say to his king one thing. All authority on earth comes from God in heaven. All authority on earth for those who possess it comes first from God who is in heaven. Now, if you're an Israelite, 
and you hear that idea, and you must be thinking to yourself, everything has been taken from us. Everything we know is lost to us. Everything we once considered familiar and freeing is gone. And therefore, there is no land in among us. There is no land in our midst that we once fought for and lived in and flourished in. And there is very little hope before us. And yet you are telling us, Daniel, as you recount for us this narrative of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that all earthly authority comes from God in heaven. How can that be? How can it be with this human authority, Nebuchadnezzar, strutting about the earth with a certain kind of swagger in its midst? Is this not a little bit of prophetic propaganda merely there to lighten their spirits? It's not a new idea to Daniel. We heard very much in chapter 1, Daniel speaking of God having a part in the fact that Israel is in Nebuchadnezzar's clutches to begin with. It was not merely that Nebuchadnezzar's forces were more vast or more powerful. It was that God delivered Israel into his hand. And it's also the fact that Daniel finds himself in a position of authority, not just because he has charisma, not just because he has skill sets or he has an aptitude, but because God was behind his empowerment. God was behind his authority. Now, that's a thought that is not certainly unique to Daniel. Travel with me, if you will, several hundred years later to the moment in John chapter 19 when Jesus himself finds himself before the authority of Pontius Pilate, the one who says unto Jesus, you know I have the authority to free you or to crucify you. And in that moment, what does Jesus say to Pilate? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You have authority to hold me. You have authority to do with me as you will. Here's Jesus, who has been accused of all manner of unjust crimes, who has been beaten and bruised and bloodied for things he did not do, and now is on the cusp of crucifixion, a crucifixion that Pilate will give license to and wash his hands of any responsibility for. And yet here is Jesus saying unto him, you wouldn't have any of this authority unless God gave it to you. The thought in and of itself is just like what Daniel says. All authority, human or otherwise, comes from God who is in heaven. That is the thought that Israel is meant to be encouraged by in the midst of their exile. But it's also a thought that you and I are meant to wrestle with. We may not find ourselves in a comparable kind of exile, but surely it is an idea we have to wrestle with. And wrestling is the right word. Because when you imagine the very notion that all human authority comes from God's authority, you have to realize that's a troubling thought in any number of ways. All the number of injustices that have been wrought by human authorities, all the number of atrocities that cannot be measured by human authorities, all the ways in which those who had authority, who even thought they had authority from God himself to perpetrate all kinds of wickedness, that's not just an old thought for us. Especially to American ears, we might think it's a thought that would just as soon be eradicated with all the kinds of despots we might send away from our world. And yet it is a thought we have to imagine. It is a thought that we have to wrestle with, and it's this truth that we wrestle with in this way. God's face is not the same toward all human authority. 
There may be an idea behind it. There may be reasons that we could scarcely fathom and we wouldn't even dare venture a guess. But we can say this, that God's face is not the same to every authority that he has established on earth. Even in this story, we realize that God's empowerment of Nebuchadnezzar over Judah was for a purpose. And that purpose was as a rod of chastisement to Judah itself for its own waywardness, for its own idolatry. God's face is not the same to everyone. But the main implication of saying unto us that God's authority is the one responsible for all human authority is this. The one issue that God was gracious to force upon Nebuchadnezzar to face is the same implication that you and I must think about when it comes to authority. And it's the same issue that Andrew Kruhulis has to think about this day. When we think about the fact that all authority comes from God's authority, that's to be understand, understood in two more senses. Two more senses that we find in this text. Yes, all authority on earth comes from God who is in heaven. But secondly, all authority on earth has purposes from God who is in heaven. And the way I make that point, or the way I find that point, is just by listening to the image that's found in the parable, in the vision. And it all comes from if you just stare at that tree long enough. Listen to what he says in verse 11 and 12. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shamed under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Just sit with that image for a minute. Just, just stare at that stately tree, allegedly the tallest tree in the neighborhood I find myself in. Just sit with that. Just stare at it for a while. It's, it's astonishing in its own right. If Mickey Beeland were here, he would give us a book-length treatment about the, the peculiarities and the Latin name of that tree and tell us everything that was wondrous about it. Just stare at a tree for a moment. It started as nothing. And it, it was nourished by what was there in its midst. And it grew to this stately size. And it certain, has a certain glory over it. And in time, it filled out in its fullness. And now it is what? It provides for everything that falls under its shade and it is a source of protection for anyone that nestles in its branches. That's the glory of a tree. But that's also a picture of something. It's a picture of what it means to have authority. It's a picture of true authority and it's a picture, a picture of what God's purposes for all authority really is. What is it? To give to be nourished by what it has been given and then to grow up into its fullness and then to become a protection, a source of provision and protection and to do so indiscriminately, to become food for all. That's the nature, that's the purposes of authority. And that is precisely what Jesus tells us in the parable of the kingdom of God. In that parable, in Matthew chapter 13, he speaks of the kingdom of heaven. It's like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests 
in its branches. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. That too, beloved, is the nature and purposes of the authority that comes from God. It is from Him insofar as it serves the purposes that He intends for it. What authority is, is at times to chastise. And surely Nebuchadnezzar was a rod of chastisement for Judah in that season. But more of the time, and mainly in what you hear from the psalmists and in other places in Scripture about the nature of authority and in its purposes, it is there mostly to bless, mostly to grow into fullness, mostly to provide, mostly to protect, just like a tree. That is a picture of what authority is and how we're to think of authority. It is a picture that Andrew is to take with him into his being a pastor in our midst. To ensure that he is one who attends to his own nourishment from that which gives life, which that will make him flourish, but always to see himself as one who has been given authority and entrusted to him. It is always a temptation for anyone in authority to think of himself as the one who got the authority for himself. There are all sorts of words that we associate with authority that we think is the mark of authority, whether they have all sorts of charisma or where they possess that thing these days we talk about called grit. And insofar as those things are useful and helpful marks of character, what Daniel is out to show us is the nature of true authority is that which grows up into its fullness because it is nourished by that which is good and therefore becomes an indiscriminate source of provision and protection. That's what Andrew has to embrace. That's what all those who are worth the name of leader and authority ought to embrace. The most striking, if not startling thing to find in this whole passage is the way Daniel responds to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's response to him in, once he hears this dream is, as I've said earlier, was, was full of alarm, full of dismay, because he knows as soon as he hears it, what it refers to, whom it refers to, and what will befall Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, back in the 70s, there was a phrase that was quoted in response to a phenomenon among those who were found captive by their captors, and they called it Stockholm Syndrome. And Stockholm Syndrome is when you start to weirdly grow affections for your captor. And when you listen to Daniel and his concern for Nebuchadnezzar, one might be tempted to think that Daniel has fallen into some sort of precursor to that idea because Daniel genuinely wants Nebuchadnezzar to succeed. Why? It's not for Nebuchadnezzar's sake. It is because when Nebuchadnezzar begins to embody the purposes that God gives to anyone with authority of the purposes of that authority, he realizes that what he wants for Nebuchadnezzar is for the good of those over whom he has rule. And you can't accuse him of having Stockholm Syndrome when, as you heard last week from Andrew in chapter 3, among those who would not bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar, and as you'll hear when we get to chapter 6, it is not Daniel who will ever bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. This is not a fawning allegiance on Daniel's part. But he wants this one who is his captor to succeed because when that captor succeeds as he should, everyone succeeds as they might because that is the purposes of authority. That's what it means to have authority from him from whom all authority comes. And that's what leads Daniel to respond 
to that king in the way that he does. Not only with alarm, not only with dismay, not only with insight, but also with courage. And that gets us to the last thing we learn about authority, about the relationship between human and divine authority. And it's what we hear at the end of the dream. The tree is brought low. It is sent to wander in a wilderness like the mind of an animal. And yet in a time, something clicks for that tree, something clicks in the senses of that tree, and that tree is allowed to grow again and begin to embody some of that glory. This dream had one purpose, for Nebuchadnezzar, so that it might change Nebuchadnezzar. And so he does, and yet he learns slowly. As you see, even after hearing what Daniel tells him, he walks about his battlements with a swagger. He glories in the gardens he planted for his wife, those gardens that became one of the seven wonders of the world. And then he is brought low, and then everything is taken from him, and then he is left to wander like an animal in the wild until something clicks. He experiences a fall from favor, a fall from favor that would have been avoidable, Avoidable if only he'd listened to what Daniel says there in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Authority comes from God. Authority is for the purposes of God. But what Daniel here in his courage is out to say to his king, who is also his captor, that all human authority is accountable to God. Period. Full stop. That God establishes authority not for that authority's own sake, but for the good of those who might benefit from their rule. And Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten that. Nebuchadnezzar walked with a swagger. Nebuchadnezzar indulged himself at first for what he thought was his own enlargement and then saw it as a pretext to oppress those who were vulnerable, who had no voice. And Daniel, in that moment, speaking from his royal court and his royal advantage, advantage and authority given to him by no less than God, took responsibility for his place and called Nebuchadnezzar to account to set aside what is wicked and to practice righteousness and to give those without a voice mercy. Mercy to those who are oppressed, not withholding them what they needed, not withholding from them what they deserved as those who bore the image of God. This authority had been given is authority for which he is accountable. Friends, Let's circle back again to what happens there in John chapter 19. Jesus has made clear to Pilate that he has no authority apart that which was given from him. But how does he finish his thought? He says there in John 19, Therefore he, that is Judas, who delivered me over to you, has the greater sin. Pilate had a civic authority, had a political authority, but even Judas had a kind of authority, an authority that was entrusted to him by Jesus himself. And how did Judas use that authority? For his own devices and for what was wicked. And Jesus says, even in the use of that authority, 
he will be held accountable for it. For that is the nature of the authority that he gives. Some have often wondered, how is it that something like the Gulag Archipelago, the Soviet systematic oppression and annihilation of millions of people who oppose state power, how could it be that that would live and thrive for such a time and for so long? And one observer of that whole phenomenon said this, it was because those in authority did not believe they were being watched by anyone but themselves. Daniel is here to remind us all that we're all being watched. Whatever authority we might have, we are accountable for that authority. What Daniel means to tell us is that the truest authority, the truest leadership believes it is accountable to something greater than its own self, that it is accountable even to the loudest, greater, it is accountable to things and a voice greater than even the loudest and richest voices that it knows. And that the worst leadership, the one that does not believe it's accountable to anything more than its own interests, there will be an accountability for that leadership sooner or later. So it was with Nebuchadnezzar, so it will be with others that Daniel encounters. And the courage to speak as he did, the courage for him to hold that authority to account, it came from somewhere. It came from a belief that he was under the authority of one to whom he most belonged. Beloved, for those who believe and those who do not, we are all under the authority of one to whom we belong. And if you're in Christ, then you belong to one who set aside his authority for a season that he might make you his own. You belong to him who demonstrated the full stateliness of that tree, growing up as one like a tender shoot, one who was nothing in the eyes of any, and grew to great stature, and flourished such that he became an indiscriminate source of provision and protection, one who lived and embodied the authority of a tree until he himself found himself hung upon a tree to make us his own that we would belong to him. This is the gospel. This is the nature of the way authority works, an authority that even Jesus himself ascribed to the Father who gave it to him, and an authority he used for the good of anyone who would bend the knee to him and follow him, not in fear, but in love, on the basis of his forgiveness, and of his reconciliation, and then the giving of splendid gifts like his spirit. This is the one to whom you might belong should you place your faith in him. And when you believe in that, you find the courage not only to believe that authority comes from God, that it works for the purposes of God, but that that authority is ultimately accountable to God. Where does this take us? Where does this leave us on a day like this? Here's the deal. Friends, whatever race you may be following, whatever race you think is most important, whatever race you have some sort of say in, when all that campaign is said and done, if the one you support wins, heaven rules, according to verse 27, and if that candidate loses, heaven rules, according to verse 27, whether you are tempted to excessive triumph or excessive anguish, 
you must believe in all circumstances, that heaven rules, which is not meant to turn you into a passive agent, but to continue to sustain you in the life of being faithfully present wherever you find yourself. That's the way we think of authority in light of the gospel's authority over us. And for Andrew, on this day, it may be the last line of the passage that speaks most clearly to him, to anyone who would be in authority, but especially those who might enter into pastoral authority when it says in verse 37, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Those who are entrusted with authority are always tempted to pride. And those who are entrusted with pastoral authority, do you know how pride works? Pride stops praying. Pride stops listening. Pride stops sharing in its vulnerability. Pride stops thinking that it needs to repent. Pride stops believing that our authority comes from one place and is for one purpose and is accountable to one Lord. On this day, we say that unto our new assistant pastor, but on this day, we also pray for him and for anyone who would follow in his footsteps. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.